Luke 22, verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who also was in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends, because before this, they had been enemies. This is God's word. You may be seated. In Luke's gospel, nearly a fourth of this book, this letter that we have, nearly a fourth of it is devoted to one week of Jesus' life. In the Gospel of John, as you read it, almost a half of that book is devoted to this last week of Jesus' life before his death. In all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them record the events of the Passion narrative. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, Jesus' trial, his crucifixion, and his death. Since God recorded the specific details of what happened during this week, Four different times. This means that for you and I, it's very, 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 very important that we listen closely to what Jesus is saying. What God wants us to hear through the text. So as we continue to walk with Jesus on his journey to the cross, we are now in the early morning hours of Good Friday. Scholars think it's anywhere between 2 o'clock in the morning all the way to 6 o'clock in the morning. And Jesus has been seized. He's been arrested from the garden when he was praying. And today, we see Jesus being brought to trial before his enemies. And though there are a lot of different scene changes going on here, some different characters, different crowds, different areas in which Jesus is at, different conversations, here's a simple way to think about what's going on. Jesus is being put on trial in both the religious sphere, but also the civil or the secular sphere. So firstly, Jesus is put on trial before the Jewish leaders, before the Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law, 
before Caiaphas, the high priest. We'll get to those people in just a few moments. But then after that, after the religious sphere, then he is brought to trial in the civil or the secular um, sphere before Pilate and before Herod. Now in Jesus' trial, as you saw, and I hope you were picking up on it a little bit, one of the recurring themes that we see is Jesus' identity. Because nobody in the text, and nobody in general, is disputing, or have, nobody has a beef with Jesus' command to love one another. Nobody is angry at Jesus for saying, love God supremely, love your neighbor as yourself. And similarly today, nobody winces an eye at that commandment, that truth, that posture of Jesus. But back then, what, people, what the people are enraged with isn't the love command, but it's rather Jesus' claims of authority. This is what's causing people to get infuriated with him. For if Jesus is king, that means the people must bow before him. If Jesus is right in that I am the Son of God, if he is right saying that, that means the Jewish leaders and the secular people, they are wrong and they must follow and submit to this king. And you can see in the text how Jesus' identity is central here. For example, Jesus is asked several questions in the text. Verse 67, are you the Messiah? Verse 70, are you the Son of God? Verse 3, are you the King of the Jews? And then the passage further affirms, verse 67, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus affirms this. Verse 69, he is the Son of Man. Verse 70, he is the Son of God. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus is the King of the Jews. And even in verse 6, Jesus is a Galilean, alluding to and pointing to his humanity. Jesus is a human being. This is who he is. Now, if you were to talk to somebody who had no conception of the Bible, and you were trying to explain to them what the Gospels were about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how would you describe it to them? Right, in a one-sentence summary, what are the Gospels about? I think there's a few ways you could answer that. I think here's a simple way that you might want to consider. What are the Gospels? Well, the Gospels reveal to us who Jesus is, and they record how people respond to Jesus. I really don't see how you can get any more de- or grand or detailed than that, right? That's the, that's the broad brush strokes. The Gospels reveal to us who Jesus is, right? His teaching, his claims, his miracles, why he came. But they also record many instances of people responding to him. Some people in fear, such as the, the people in the region of Gadarene, when Jesus cast out the demons and sent them into the herd of pigs, the people were fearful of him. They were angry at him. You see people falling to him in humility. You see people in this text uh, in anger and in rage against Jesus. But that's a simple way to think of it. And in these final, final moments of Jesus' life, right, we're talking about mere hours left in his, his existence before his death. These final hours of his life, we see people responding to Jesus in a very ugly, nasty way. We see him facing false accusations, ridicule, mockery, uh, malice, hatred, disdain, and perhaps most of all, injustice, as he ought not to be there because he is perfect and he is good. So in our text, what we're going to do
We're going to look at kind of two character studies. Firstly, with the Sanhedrin. Then secondly, with Herod. Next week, or when I come back, we'll continue with Pilate and look at him. But what we see in the text are two big ways, sinful ways, that we should avoid approaching Jesus. Okay, let me say that again. In the text, what we see exemplified here are two sinful attitudes that we must not have as we approach Jesus. Right? This is the opposite of what you and I ought to do. So firstly, from the Sanhedrin, the hell-bent religious leaders, we see number one, irreverent animosity. And then number two, as we look at the portrait of Herod, we see a mocking accusation. Brothers and sisters, both of these things, irreverent animosity, mocking accusation, they must be far from our lips. So firstly, verses 63 to 71, the hell-bent religious leaders. Now remember, the first component of Jesus' trial is before the Jewish leaders or the Sanhedrin. Now if you've read your Bible recently or you've read through the Gospels at all, you've probably seen or heard that word Sanhedrin before. Now, what is that? Does anybody know what the Sanhedrin is, right? I think sometimes we just assume that we know, we think that we know, but we really don't. We kind of forget the details of what's going on. What is the Sanhedrin? Well, it's a group of 70 men and the high priest, so 71 people total. And what they did, they functioned as the supreme court of the Jewish people, you know, to kind of think about it in our terms. So the 70 men and the high priest, they served as the highest human authority for the Jewish people. And they, all the questions about the law and religious life and life in general, they were brought before these 70 men. The highest things, the most important things. And Caiaphas, if you've heard that name before in the Passion narrative, Caiaphas is the high priest during this time. You also might remember the name Annas. Annas was the former priest high priest. So Jesus is first brought to Annas, and then Annas sends him to Caiaphas, right? But in the text, all we see is in verse 66, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priest and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. This is the Sanhedrin that Luke is talking about. You can compare and contrast with Matthew, Mark, and John. So zoom out again. Why is Jesus there in the first place. Zoom back to Luke 19, verses 47 to 48. Every day, Jesus was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were what? They were trying to do what? Kill him. Murder him. Okay? Yet, they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So the Sanhedrin, they were looking for a prime opportunity in which they could steal Jesus away and do so in a manner that would cause the least amount of resistance. Because if they were to do it in the brightness of day, there would have been a massive crowd listening to him preach, and they would have had to fight and quarrel with him. They wanted to avoid that. They wanted to circumvent public opposition. And that's why they took Jesus in the middle of the night or early in the morning. So the Sanhedrin then, Jesus is before them. What are they doing? They are wanting to conduct a type of pre-trial investigation, to use some legal terminology. And their main goal is this. They want to find something to incriminate Jesus with. Because 
as John chapter 18, verse 31 tells us. Listen to the text. Pilate said to the Jewish leaders, Take him, take Jesus yourselves, and judge him by your own law. But then they respond to Pilate, But we have no right to execute anyone. They, they objected. So, in other words, they wanted to murder Jesus. They wanted to kill him, destroy him, but they had no authority to do that. Only the civil, secular government could do that at this time. So what they want to do is find something that they can bring before Pilate, whom they're going to go to in just a few moments, so that way Pilate can officially draw the line and say, Jesus, you're guilty, you're condemned, off to the gallows for you. So what did the Sanhedrin do? Look at verse 67. If you are the Messiah, tell us. In other words, are you the promised one? Are you the anointed one? Are you the Christ? Are you the one who would establish God's kingdom? Are you the one that we've been waiting for who would free us from oppression? Are you the Messiah? And then Jesus, he knows their hearts. He knows their minds. He knows their attitude. If I tell you, you wouldn't believe me. But from now on, and and if I asked you, you would not answer. Then verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Quick pause there. See if anybody wants to find that one out. Sounds like some of y'all <laughs> might have turned on your alls. I'm not bothered by it. I just want to see if anybody else is. All right, somebody's going to look. Y'all doing okay? We're human, right? We're human. It's okay. We're human. Sounds like they got it. So this talk of Messiah then. Right? Are you the Messiah? Would you and then look at Jesus' response, verse sixty nine. It's quite interesting to see what he says. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. For you and I, that language doesn't really set with us, right? What is Jesus talking about? It doesn't sound like he's really saying much. But Jesus is most likely alluding to two different passages. Psalm 110, verse 1, which if you may recall, some little Bible trivia for you. Psalm 110 is perhaps the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, right? Just something to consider. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Right? Enemies being a footstool for your feet. In other words, this person who's going to be at the right hand of God is going to judge over his enemies. Okay? Number two, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Daniel speaks about one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language 
worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So brothers and sisters, today, when Jesus says, from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God, what he is saying is, all authority, all glory, all sovereign power, all righteous judgment, the Father is giving it to me. I'm going to be at his right hand. All of these things are going to be mine. I'm going to be the one sitting at the right hand of God. I am going to be the one sitting in the highest court of all, the heavenly courtroom. And soon, you will be the ones being judged by me. It's hard for us to to feel the tension there, the weight, the meaning of all that's going on. But in in the other Gospels, we see that the the Jewish leaders are enraged with what Jesus just said. Uh, The text tells us that the the high priest tore his clothes, tore the robes that he was wearing, just a sign of, of shock, a sign of mourning. And they say, this man is blaspheming before God. Verse 71, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And you see, the Jewish leaders and many people today, right? Here's the connection of the 21st century. Many people today and back then, they recognize that there is an aura of authority around Jesus. That there's something about him. There's something to his words. Something authoritative about them. And as I mentioned earlier, nobody has an issue with Jesus' preaching and teaching on loving people and on forgiving others, turning the other cheek, showing compassion to the poor. Nobody has an issue with that. But when it comes to the central topic of Jesus' identity, many, many people are violently opposed to that. Do you know anybody like that? Did that describe you at one point in your life? Right? When you see somebody you love, maybe it's a, a child of yours, or spouse, or somebody, they refuse to follow Christ. Perhaps the reason is this. They recognize that Jesus is a threat to their own authority, and they do not want to change their lives. That's the simple reason that many people do not bow the knee to Jesus. They recognize that there is something unique about him, that if they take Jesus seriously, they must change their lives. They must submit to a new king but they don't want to do that. The Jewish leaders don't want to do that. In blindness, in pride, they refuse to submit to this Messiah. And brothers and sisters, when we approach Jesus, we must not do so with irreverent animosity, but instead, we must humbly accept that he is the king and that he is the Lord. What does that practically mean? That means When Jesus speaks, we listen. So when Jesus gives those commands to forgive your neighbor, forgive those who have wronged you, it's something that on the surface, right, everybody loves forgiveness, but when you are actually put to the test to do that, whether it be forgive your spouse, forgive your child, forgive your parents, forgive your boss, forgive somebody close to you, when you are put to the test to actually do that, How many of us joyfully, eagerly want to do that? Nobody. We recoil at that. We think people need to get what they deserve. They don't deserve. But submitting to God means saying, you're the king, 
you know what's best. Help me to follow your word. Help me to practice what you teach. That's what true submission looks like. So brothers and sisters, may you and I humbly approach our king. But then secondly, we see through Herod, mocking accusation. And again, this is a sinful attitude we must avoid and run away from. So verse 23, this is when the scene shifts. For then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. This is shifting from the the religious side to the civil or secular side of things. So in the text, you see verses 1 to 6, Jesus is first brought before Pilate. And you'll notice some of the blatantly false things that they say. Verse 2, they began to accuse him saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, you might recall, you see, yeah, Luke chapter 20, verses 20 to 26. Some of these are just blatantly false, specifically the tax one, right? Because Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He clearly said, you need to pay taxes. You should pay taxes. You must pay taxes to be a good citizen of the nation you're in. Some of these are blatantly false. And you keep in mind, the civil magistrate, secular government, they could care less about specific theological disputes that the, the Jewish leaders are having with Jesus. That's why, in part, Pilate said, go judge him yourselves. Go take care of your own law. Take care. It has nothing to do with us. But the civil government does care about insurrection. They do care about uprisings. They do care about getting their money. Right? They care about these secular civil things. And that's why, in, and you see in verse 3, what does Pilate question Jesus about? So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. He cares about the authority issue, right? We don't want another king to come and subvert the authority that the Roman people have over the, Jew, the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. But then, after a, a few, a brief interrogation by Pilate, look at verse 4. Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. This man is innocent. And then, how do they immediately respond? No, 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 no. Um, He stirs up a lot of people. There's a lot of just uh, stirring up and quarreling going on, a lot of unrest that he's started. He started in Galilee, and he's come all the way to Jerusalem here, the capital, and he's just spreading it like wildfire. And then Pilate pauses, verse 6. Wait, 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 hold on. You're telling me he's a Galilean? I'm not even the one that's supposed to be over him. Now, for us today... So the, the nation of Israel, it's kind of like a little, a long pillar like this. So the Sea of Galilee, let's just imagine it's right here. Jerusalem is down here. So Jesus is from Galilee, the region right around the Sea of Galilee. And Nazareth, his hometown, the town he grew up in, is right here in Galilee. All right? So Herod, as we see in the text, look at verse 7. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod who is also in Jerusalem at that time. So Herod is what's known as a tetrarch of that region. And what is a tetrarch? A tetrarch is a ruler of one-fourth, a ruler of a quarter. Okay? So Herod, this Herod is not the same one that we see read about in the Christmas account. That Herod was Herod the Great. 
The Herod we read about here in Luke 23 is Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. So when Herod the Great died, his kingdom, if you will, it's not his kingdom, but you know what I mean, his kingdom was split apart, and so Herod Antipas ruled over the region of Galilee. Thus, Jesus is brought before him. Now, I like what one commentator said about this encounter. There are many movies, many TV shows, many books, many stories, where the climax of it all is, is seen when two people, long separated, come together at last, for good or for ill, the good guy and the bad guy. Right? The famous words, we meet at last, Mr. Bond. Right? That, that's the climax of the movie. And Herod here, he has been in the background of the Gospel of Luke ever since the early chapters. I mean, ever since um, you know, Luke, b- b- the very beginning with Herod the Great, but also throughout the Gospel, Herod makes a few appearances. And this Herod, Antipas, is the one who murdered John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 13, verse 31, we read that Antipas, he wanted to hunt Jesus down and kill him during Jesus' earlier ministry. So Jesus, when he meets Pilate, or, or excuse me, when he meets Herod here, this is the only gospel that records this. You, you read Matthew, Mark, and John, they don't record this specific instance. So it's as if Luke in a literary fashion, he is showing us and telling us that the sham king of the Jews, being Herod, face to face with the true king of the universe, Jesus Christ himself. So what does he do? Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Herod taunts him. He treats Jesus like a circus animal. Do a trick for me. And I certainly imagine that Herod and his vile soldiers, as verse 11 talks about, I imagine that they were reveling in debauchery and drunkenness at this time. They assaulted him with sarcastic questions, verse 9. They vehemently accused him, verse 10. They ridiculed him and mocked him. And then in verse 11 as well, they dressed him, mocked him in an elegant robe. Oh, you're the king of the Jews? Here's your robe. And later, right, the crown of thorns will be placed on his head. And how can you not recoil at this thought of what they're doing here? Because this is the Son of God, our Lord, our King. How many of you recoil or get angry at somebody accusing you of being a liar? How many of you get angry if somebody speaks ill of your parents or your family, your family name? We all do. How much more so should we feel this anger, this sorrow, this and what's going on to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who's being verbally assaulted and emotionally abused. When you look at this despicable Herod character, the sad reality is, in bridging it to today, 
that there are many who approach Jesus with this mockery and this scoff about them. There are many people in today's society that have a slight fascination with Jesus. They have heard about him. They, they know a few little things about him here and there, kind of like Herod. Herod had heard that he had done a couple miracles here and there. He's a fascinating character. But they don't take him seriously. They approach Jesus and view him as a type of genie, somebody who's there to whip out a miracle. They approach Jesus with this calloused attitude of, you know, make me feel good, impress me, entertain me. And many people approach Jesus in a very shallow, surface level attitude. They never really dig into his claims. They never really care about who he said he is. They just pick and choose and have and understand, you know, I know Jesus is um, followed by a lot of people, but yeah, he's not that big. He's just, they keep him at a, a, an arm's distance. Brothers and sisters, when you and I approach Jesus, mocking accusation must be far from our lips. If you and I today, if you're a Christian, that may not be a big issue for you. You may not ever obtusely and directly do anything that ugly before our king. But understand what's kind of beneath what Herod is doing. It's this, it's this surface level, shallow engagement with Jesus. And how guilty are you and I of that? We don't take Jesus seriously. We don't take his claim seriously. We do not take his word seriously as we ought to. And may that attitude be far from us. Instead, what were our mouths created for? James chapter 3 talks about this. Out of the mouth of man comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Which one should be coming from our mouths? Praise. Sweet water, fresh water flowing from our mouths. Praising God praising Christ foremostly, but then also praising others, encouraging others, building one another up. That is what our mouths were designed for, praising and adoring our King. So brothers and sisters, in conclusion, finally, right in uh, Philippians chapter 3, we read it this morning, kind of interesting. Paul said in the, uh, the very first verse there, depending upon your translation. Philippians 3, he said, Finally, my brothers and sisters. And then he wrote two more chapters right after that. Right, so this is finally, though, for real. We're looking at the drapes of the crucifixion. But as we do so, to use the, the analogy of the Wizard of Oz, do not forget the theology that's behind the curtain. This is not just human events this is not just random events because beneath and before all of this, these events that we read about, the power of Satan is at work trying to stop not just a good preacher, not just a miracle worker, but the powers of Satan are at work to try to destroy and stop the Son of God, the Messiah, the Deliverer. This is what we see, the, this sheer ugliness of the Sanhedrin, of of Herod, but then as next, next time we'll see with Pilate, his ambivalence towards Jesus. He knows a lot of truth, but he never fully commits 
in the midst of all of this, it's a very dark trial, a literal trial that Jesus is going through. But even so, even when Jesus is being pressed, the radiance of Christ still shines. Because even in this darkness, we are reminded that Jesus is the authority. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Deliverer. He is the Christ. He is the true King of the Jews. The radiance of who he is still shines through. And brothers and sisters, if you see the light of Christ in this text, if you see the light of Christ in your life, approach him with humility. Approach him with adoration and with full submission. For he is our king, and we must bow the knee before him. This is the God that we serve. Will you join me in prayer, and then we'll close with the doxology. Our Father, may your kingdom come. Jesus, Please help us to delight in your love. And Holy Spirit, please help us to stand upon the truth of your word. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.